Uh, today we're thinking about endurance. How can we persevere? How can we endure uh, in the Christian life? Uh, so that's why I got you talking about endurance. Uh, let me pray, and then we're going to look at this uh, letter. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather as your people. We thank you that uh, you gather us so that you can speak to us. And so we pray this day that we would have a real sense that you uh, are indeed speaking to us through this, your word. Uh, please give us ears to hear, as we've heard in this letter and repeatedly through these uh, letters to the churches in Revelation. Please, by the power of your spirit, give us ears that, that truly hear your word, uh, that trust it, uh, that delight in it, that are uh, moved to obey it. Uh, for glory of uh, Christ we pray. Amen. Uh, so I've been uh, pretty slack recently. Uh, if you want to know, uh, you can just talk to Gabby about that. Uh, but one of the things I really enjoy doing is running, uh, particularly uh, perhaps longer distance running. Uh, I've never run a full marathon. Once again, Gabby outdoes me there. She's, she's run a marathon. Uh, but I have run a few half marathons. And one of the highlights was doing the, uh, what's called the run to the G. Right? I don't know if anyone's done that before, but you kind of actually finish the run uh, by doing a lap of the MCG. And I remember finishing that run, I kind of endured to the end, you know, kind of hit the wall about 17 k's, but pushed through to the end of the half marathon. And I just felt like running around the MCG, imagining 100,000 people cheering me on. I was just a supreme athlete. Like I could have been in the Commonwealth Games. I didn't look like a supreme athlete, but that's exactly how I felt. I think it could have been that run actually where I I kind of vomited soon after the finish line because uh, I was that exhausted, but that doesn't fit the supreme athlete. Well, actually, some of the marathon runners do that at the end. Anyway, the, the point is uh, that I endured to the end. And actually doing long-distance running uh, has taught me a whole lot about the Christian life uh, because the Christian life is much more like a marathon than a sprint. Uh, the Christian life is long, it's hard. Uh, sometimes you do feel like you're hitting the wall, Sometimes uh, it's like you've got a massive spiritual stitch. You just feel like you can't go on. I couldn't possibly take another step. Uh, but in the midst of that, Christ calls us to finish the race. He calls us to endure to the end. And that's both the encouragement and challenge for this church in Philadelphia, right? It's an encouragement to them because they already are enduring. They're doing a pretty good job, despite real opposition. But it's also a challenge because they, if they want to enjoy the full blessings of their salvation, they have to endure to the end. So first, what do we know about this city of Philadelphia, the actual city? Well, like many of these cities we've looked at, Philadelphia was a very wealthy city, primarily because it was located right on what was called the Roman Imperial Postal Service, right? a very early kind of postal service. It was the main route, the main trade route, that ran through the whole Roman Empire and beyond. So it got lots of traffic, business traffic and so on, trade traffic. And because of that kind of strategic location, the guy who founded Philadelphia wanted it to be a missionary city. And not uh, to proclaim the good news about Jesus, but to proclaim the good news of Greece. Right? To, to, be kind of, uh, to propagate Greek culture, Greek philosophy uh, through the whole empire and beyond. Uh, so that's uh, Philadelphia. The other thing uh, you have to know about Philadelphia uh, is that it, uh, ge uh, the kind of geology in the area was very unstable. So there were lots of earthquakes in this region. Uh, in fact, in 17 AD, uh, Philadelphia was almost completely destroyed uh, by an earthquake. And yet in the midst of that turmoil, Christianity really flourished in this city. Right, so so that, that's uh, the city of Philadelphia. 
You can see them at the outline there, the city of Philadelphia. Well, what about the characteristics of Christ? Each of these visions has a particular characteristic of Christ. How, how does Christ reveal himself to this church? Well, uh, have a look at verse 7. Uh, he says, These are the words of him who is holy and true. Holy and true. Uh, that's kind of interesting because a few chapters after this, in, in Revelation chapter 6, uh, John has a vision of some Christians who've been killed for their faith. They're, they're martyrs. Uh, and in verse 10, they cry out to God uh, saying, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth? So just a few chapters after this, uh, God himself, right? that's the Old Testament God, the Lord, the, the sovereign Lord of the entire creation, he is described as being holy and true. This is a characteristic of God, Yahweh, through the whole Old Testament even. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I, I want you to remember that I'm not just some good man. I'm not just a great moral teacher. I'm not just a marvellous miracle worker. Right? I am God himself, the eternal son of the living God. And as God himself, Christ says he's distinct from his world. This is different to other worldviews where God's kind of a part of the world or in, with and under the world, right? Not Christianity. Christ is distinct from his world. He's holy. He's set apart. He stands out like a light in the darkness. So Christ encourages these Christians to live lives that show that they too, are kind of, they belong to him. Right? To live holy lives, to live distinctive lives, lives that, that stand out in this world. Uh, he also reveals himself as true, right? holy and true. Uh, true here has the sense of being genuine, the sense of being the real deal, the genuine article, not some fake, some cheap imitation. Right, so, so Christ is assuring this church uh, that he really is God. Right, he's not a fake or a phony or a sham. He's not some cheap imitation. He is the true revelation of God himself. And we've got, to, we've got to emphasize that today because uh, there are plenty of people who would say, oh, look, of course I believe in Jesus. Of course I believe in Jesus. But, but they don't believe in this Jesus, the, the true Jesus. Uh, so Muslims believe in Jesus, but not this Jesus. Either they simply believe Jesus is, is one of the prophets. Right? No, not even the greatest prophet, right? That, that's Muhammad, let alone God. Uh, Sikhs believe in Jesus. I, I'm getting, I, I don't drive anymore. I'm getting a bunch of Ubers. And, and pretty much everyone is a Sikh. Right? Lots of conversations with Sikhs. Uh, and they, they believe in Jesus too. Uh, but not this Jesus. Uh, Jesus is just one of their many gods. Great respect for Jesus, but he's not the God. Uh, Jews believe in Jesus, but they don't believe he's the eternal son of God, the Messiah. Buddhists believe in Jesus, but to them he's, he's basically just another holy man. Right? They're in a similar category to the Dalai Lama. Well, you get the idea. Lots of people say, of course I believe in Jesus, but that they don't believe in this Jesus. They believe in their own version of Jesus. But of course, in the end, their Jesus is not the true Jesus. Their Jesus is a cheap imitation of the real deal. It's not that it's thoroughly horrible. But their Jesus doesn't, the worst thing is their Jesus doesn't have the power to save them from their sins. So 
so he is a cheap imitation and not the one who is holy and true. So Christ reminds these Christians that he is true, he's the real deal and he wants them to show that they're the real deal, that tr- they truly are Christians, right? How do they show that? By enduring to the end in their faith, by persevering. Christ also reveals himself, have a look there, as the one who has, who holds the key of David. So because he's got this key, uh, what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Uh, If you've got a Bible, uh, you you might want to flick back to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Right, big book, uh, pretty close to the middle of the Bible. If you open up to the middle of the Bible, fair chance you'll land in Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah chapter 22, uh, verses 20 to 22. I'll give you a second to find that. Uh, because this reference to the key of David and doors being, you know, doors that uh, can't be shut and opened, that, 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 that comes from Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah 22, uh, verses 20 to 22. Uh, here's what we read there. Uh, In that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulders, notice this, the key to the house of David and what he opens no one can shut and what he shuts no one can open. That's pretty similar to the words in in Revelation 3. Uh, Of course, today we we still have a bit of this idea, don't we, Uh, uh, that someone can be given the keys of a city. I was symbolic and who cares about who give, Robert Doyle gives keys to, like that kind of thing. But, but it's still, it's a symbol of the person's influence, their power, their authority. Somehow they've earned this right to have the keys of the city. Likewise, Eliakim was a man with great authority. King David gave him the keys to the whole city of Jerusalem, right? And not just to the city itself, but to the treasury of the king. So Eliakim had authority to let people in to the, the presence of the king, and to let people in, to, to all the blessings that came from that, all the blessings of the kingdom. So if you come back to, to Revelation chapter 3, uh, what, what we see here is that Eliakim, like, like lots of characters in the Old Testament, Eliakim really is just a signpost. But he's pointing us to Christ. And the one who's got the keys, not just to the earthly city of Jerusalem, but to the heavenly city of Jerusalem. The city we'll see at the end of Revelation, if you read Revelation 20 to 22. Right? And the point is that Christ is the only one who has the authority to let people into the presence of God, into this heavenly city, into all the blessings, not just of being in the presence of King David, but of being in the presence of God, the cosmic king. So that's the characteristic of Christ. Right? He's got this key of David that can open the door into the presence of God, into this heavenly city. Uh, In verses 8 to 10, uh, we see that Christ gives a bunch of compliments to this church. And notice that last week, when we looked at the church in Sardis, uh, Sardis got lots of criticisms and no compliments. Here we've got Philadelphia, no criticisms, maybe some challenges, no criticisms, lots of compliments. Right, so who wants to be in Philadelphia? Who wants to be in Sardis? Okay, so here we are in Philadelphia. The first compliment in verse 8 Uh, we see, uh, Christ says, I know your deeds. Uh, See, I have placed before you an open door 
uh, that no one can shut. The compliment actually comes after this, but let's deal with this first. What's this open door? Uh, well, let's, uh, maybe I've hinted at in, in, in the previous kind of talking about the key of David. But let's have a look. If you've got your Bible, flick over to Revelation chapter 4, uh, verse 1. Revelation 4, verse 1. Uh, John says this there. He says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. And what we're going to see in a second is that uh, there are some so-called Jews in Philadelphia uh, that had shut the doors of their synagogue. Uh, they shut the doors on any Jews in Philadelphia who'd converted to Christianity. And you can imagine that that was painful for those Christians, right? A community you'd been part of for your whole life, and they just kind of slammed the door in your face. And so you, hopefully you can see that this, these verses here, is a real, they're a real encouragement, Right, because Christ's saying to these Christians that he's opened a door for them that can never be shut. And it's not just the door of some synagogue or a really great church or a job. Right, it's, a, it's a door of heaven. It's the heavenly city. And all the blessings that come from that's the door that Christ has opened. He's the only one who has the key of David that can open up those blessings. So that's the main meaning of this open door, right? So the entry into the kingdom of God, this heavenly city. But I actually think that there's another meaning that's connected to it. Bearing in mind the location of Philadelphia. Remember, it's a strategic city, missionary city. So I think Christ's saying to these Christians that on one level, it's great that they believe that Christ is the only one who can open the doors of heaven. Wonderful that they've come to believe that for themselves. Uh, but he's reminding them that that door is not just open for them. It's open for the nations, people of every tribe and language and tongue. And so now it's their job. He's opening the door. He's giving them this great opportunity to share the good news of the gospel with all the people who travel through their city along that trade route. I say that because this phrase, an open door, is repeatedly used in the New Testament to refer to sharing the gospel. And an open door for the gospel. So in Acts 14, uh, Luke reports on, on Paul's first missionary journey. And he says this. He says uh, in verse 27, if you want to look it up, uh, on arriving there, that this is back in Antioch, uh, they gathered the church together and reported on all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. It's evangelism. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, I'll stay on in Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has been opened to me. Colossians 4 verse 3, Paul says, And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message. So I think this is the point, right? Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. So he's got authority not just over who gets into heaven, I can use that anyway. He opens the door for certain people. Uh, but he's also got over th- authority over when and where people hear the message uh, that opens the door into heaven. The gospel, he rules over everything. He determines when people hear the gospel and, and the time and place when they get into heaven. The, uh, and so Christ has all authority. He rules over every person and everything. Uh, so let me ask, uh, what doors do you think Christ might be opening for us as a church? Think about that. Christ has opened doors for the church in Philadelphia. I'll give you a couple. Uh, uh, Christ has opened a door for us. Uh, It's still open uh, at La Trobe University. It's a wonderful opportunity 
to share the gospel there and through the, the work, the ministry of staff and students who come to our church that are part of the Christian union, uh, we, we want to make the most of that door. But we want to make the most of the door that Christ has opened with, with mums, typically parents in general, but typically mums who come along to mainly music or people that we're connecting with or that we want to share the gospel with. And there's another open door that, that we uh, really haven't used very much. Right, but you can imagine, just as there were uh, people of many uh, nations and peoples fl- uh, passing through the city of Philadelphia, uh, so also there's people of many nations flocking to Melbourne. Hey, it's a massive open door for the gospel. People uh, from countries uh, where they would have been killed if they explored Christianity, they would have never heard about Jesus, they're coming to Melbourne, and for the first time they're getting an opportunity to explore the gospel. It's an incredible open door. Well, we're not... Like at the moment, our church isn't very multicultural. We haven't kind of worked out uh, how to use this open door very much yet. But I think we've got to recognise that it is a massive open door. And I pray that we can use it for the glory of Christ in the future. But let's let's just kind of, we've got to think. uh, What are the open doors that Christ is giving us? Perhaps Christ is closing doors. Let's not get antsy about that. You know, um, scripture in schools, you know. Christ is closing a door, but he's opening others. That's us as a church. Well, what about you personally? I wonder what doors Christ is opening in your life. Maybe take a, take a moment, jot down a name. Who, who are the people in your life? They're not Christians, but uh, they're kind of somewhat warm or, or receptive to the gospel. They actually want to have conversations about Jesus. Maybe there are some of those people. They're, they're, the kind of door of their hearts being opened up. And maybe you feel like there aren't any open doors. Well, you... May this be an encouragement to pray, because Christ has all authority. He can open the door of any person's heart. So start praying that Christ would use his key of David, the, the key of all authority, and open the door so that your friend can join us in the heavenly city. Uh, have a look at the rest of verse 8. Because uh, I think part of the reason why Christ is so complimentary of this church, uh, why he's giving them these, these gospel opportunities... Uh, is that, you see it there, he knows uh, that they have little strength, yet they have kept his word and have not denied his name. Right, from Philadelphia, at least from the outside, is not uh, you know, thinking, imagining a kind of great missionary powerhouse. What would that church look like? Probably not Philadelphia. Right? It's not a great missionary powerhouse. It, uh, they have little strength. They're small, they're insignificant. Uh, in the eyes of the world, they're very weak. And yet Christ sees some sort of inner strength. He observes that their willingness to keep, to guard, to obey his word, uh, even in the midst of suffering, to not deny his name. And so that's his compliment to them, his encouragement to them. And that really is a big theme throughout the Bible, that our God delights in achieving his purposes through people and churches uh, that are weak and frankly unimpressive in the eyes of the world. Uh, Why is that? Well, why does God want to use weak, these weak churches, weak people? Well, 1 Corinthians 1. Let me read some verses. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, uh, Brothers and sisters, uh, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Uh, not many were of noble birth. Uh, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Uh, he chose the weak things to shame the strong. He chose the lowly and despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Right? That's what God did. Why did he do all that? Paul says, verse 29, so that 
no one may boast before him. Right? The church in Philadelphia was not particularly strong or influential or wise. But God chose them not just to be his people, but to be a part of his great mission work in the world. And he did that because he wanted them to be clear that any success they had was completely about him and his power and his grace, not about them. And so they would boast in him. They wouldn't pump themselves up. They would pump God up. Wouldn't put the spotlight on them, but put the spotlight on God. It's 100% of his doing, his grace, his power. And so Christ says he wants to use this church of little strength. And in verse 9, he says, because you keep my word, you haven't denied the faith, uh, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Uh, If you've been following this uh, series in in the Letters to the Seven Churches, uh, you'll know that back in chapter 2, verse 9, we also saw this synagogue of Satan. But it refers to, to a group of people who profess to be Jews and on the outside they look like they're Jews right? because they observe uh, lots of Jewish practices, probably like, like circumcision. Uh, but Paul says in, in Romans chapter 2 that a, a person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision uh, is circumcision of the heart. You see Christ's point, he's saying these aren't true Jews, they're fake Jews, they're they're pseudo-Jews. Because even though they look like Jews on the outside, they observe lots of practices, they put on the show, there's no real change in their hearts. And what's going on in Philadelphia is that these fake Jews resented the fact that, that some of their community are converting to Christianity and they've closed the doors of the synagogue. And in those conversations, uh, they've said to these Christians, can't you see that that we're God's people? Can't you see that that we're the ones that God loves? One day you'll be crawling back to us, admitting that God was with us all along. And Christ says it's the opposite, doesn't he? He says one day these Jews will fall at the feet of these Christians, willingly or not, and acknowledge that he's loved them, the Christians. They are God's cheap, those God's true people. And not these Jews. They're just cheap imitations. They're fakes, looking good on the outside, but no real change. Uh, in verse 10, there's uh, another compliment. You see it there? Christ says, you have kept my command uh, to endure patiently. Oh, I don't typically kind of talk about... Greek and translations and stuff, but uh, this is actually a, a, a bit of a hard kind of sentence to translate. Uh, I think there's another translation, the ESV, it's probably a little bit better. It says, uh, since you have kept my word about patient endurance. And most literally, it probably is like, uh, since you have kept the word about my patient endurance. Yeah, what's going on here is that these, uh, the, the word these Christians are keeping, right? they're, they're guarding a particular word, that they're holding on to it. Right? The word they're keeping is the gospel. Right? It's the word about how Christ patiently endured his suffering uh, but was later glorified by his Father. Uh, so the encouragement is that, that they too should patiently endure their suffering uh, so that one day they too will be glorified by their Father. And because they're willing to endure patiently, Christ promises uh, that he'll keep them uh, from the hour of trial. See that there? 
Uh, the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world uh, to test the inhabitants of the earth. Well, what's this hour of trial? Well, what's that about? Well, notice at least one thing, uh, that it's not a time of testing for Christians. It's a time of testing for uh, the inhabitants of the earth. Right, literally, that's uh, people who dwell, those uh, who kind of find their home on the earth. So that phrase, the inhabitants of the earth, it's actually a, a bit of spiritual commentary. It's talking about the spiritual condition of, of these people's hearts. These are people uh, who, from God's perspective, uh, have settled down way too much in this world. If you can imagine, that the word is actually related to the word for tent. So if you can imagine if, the, if these, these people, if their life was a tent, uh, these people have driven their tent pegs down really deep in this world. This world is their home, it's all there is, and so really they they want to enjoy all the gifts of this world, but they couldn't care less about God, the giver of the gifts. And that's okay, right? Like my my daughter Ada, she just uh, had her birthday, turned four years old. Uh, When she was two, she got the gifts, and it was kind of okay that she didn't ever say thank you, or like you really had to push her, right? You you expect that in a two-year-old. But now she's four, we expect her to not just care about the gifts, but the giver as well. Right, and magnify that to a cosmic scale. Uh, spiritually, we're all like two-year-olds. We want to enjoy the gifts, but we don't care less about the giver. That's the inhabitants of the earth. They're, they're people who want the gifts, but they're saying this world's all, all there is. We don't care about the giver. And so throughout Revelation, uh, there's this coming time of judgment for those who dwell on the earth, the inhabitants of the earth. So that verse I referenced earlier, Revelation 6, verse 10, uh, says, How long, sovereign Lord, uh, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth? It recurs throughout Revelation. There's going to be this time of trial, of judgment. Uh, But here Christ's saying uh, to his people, don't worry about the time of trial. Because even if it does come in your lifetime, I'm more than powerful to keep you, to, to protect you. And now, I don't think that means that Christ's going to remove his people from the world. Well, I like that Left Behind series, right? Like some, I'm not going to make too much of this, but I'll explain why. I don't. Like that, that series where Christ removes his people before the Great Tribulation. I'm not sure that that's right. But because in John 17, uh, Jesus uh, prayed uh, to his Father saying, My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them. And it's the same word as Jesus says in Revelation 3. He says he's going to keep his people. And he keep them, right? The picture is that while God judges the inhabitants of the earth, his people will be kept safe. They'll be secure. If you want an example of it, it's like God judged the people of Egypt while his people were there. But they were safe. God had their back. He protected them. They were secure, you see. I think it'll be the same in this hour of trial. Uh, So in verse 11, uh, we come to the command of the the kind of command of Christ. And what we see here is that the focus of the Christians should be very different to the inhabitants of the earth. Christ says, "I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take your crown." You see the focus there. Rather than focusing uh, exclusively on this world. Christ saying these Christians should focus on the next world. Their focus should be on him, on the fact that he's coming soon, 
on his glorious return. And when he comes, uh, they're going to receive their crown of glory. Uh, that crown uh, is more like a wreath, like, like the one an athlete would receive in the ancient games when they won the race. Uh, that's the picture here. Enduring to the end of the race, getting a crown. Uh, and, uh, of course, if you want the crown, uh, you actually have to finish the race. That's how it works. You might not sprint to the end. It might feel like a real effort to just trust in Christ for one more day, for one more week. It might feel like a real effort to take just one more step of faith. But the, the promise here is that if you keep taking those steps one by one, looking for the return of Christ, uh, one day you'll receive your crown of glory. And in Christ's commitment to the church, in verses 12 and 13, uh, he kind of unpacks a little what that glory is going to look like. But he says, verse 12, uh, the one who's victorious, right? They've run to the end. They've won the race. I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I'll also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So these weak Christians, they're they're fragile, they feel insignificant, but one day they'll be be pillars in God's temple. They'll be secure, they'll be glorious. And remember that these Christians have have lived through earthquakes. They've seen buildings that were seemingly permanent, completely destroyed, pillars on the ground. But Christ says, not you. You guys won't be destroyed. You guys will be eternal pillars in the temple of my God, stable and secure forever. And it's there in the temple, uh, in the presence of God, that these Christians will find their ultimate place of belonging. Uh, that's what all those names are about. It's about belonging. Uh, once again, you know, Ada's really concerned. I don't want to always have illustrations about my kids, but Ada goes to childcare and, and they say, make sure you've got your name written on everything so that we know what belongs to you, you see. And Ada's really caught on to that. Every, every time if she comes out of Sunday school, uh, she'll be like, uh, my, my name's like my name's on this so that everyone knows that this is my work, right? Like you know, she's learning the concept, right? And here God's name is on these Christians so that everyone knows that they belong to him. Uh, first, uh, God himself, his name is on them. Right? They'll receive his name because they belong to him. They're God's treasured possession. Second, they'll receive the name of God's city because that's where they belong. That's their home, the new Jerusalem, uh, the place where they'll finally be with their God. And third, uh, they'll receive Christ's new name. Now, that's a bit weird. Christ's new name, uh, no one really knows what that name is. Uh, but the point is that if you're a Christian, you belong to Christ forever. You belong to one another. Your union with him goes on forever and you'll get to know him more and more. Uh, maybe you'll even discover a new name. I don't know. I don't know. I certainly don't know what it is, right? But the picture is of eternity with Christ, belonging to him, going to new depths of understanding him. So so the overall challenge in this letter, I think, is to endure to the end. Endure to the end as Christians. And I think that's a lot harder than it seems. A lot harder, but because we know, uh, perhaps increasingly in Australia, uh, that holding on to Christ is also going to mean letting go of things that we'd prefer to hold on to. That's how it's going to work. Perhaps even more so, I was talking to some people this afternoon uh, and saying how I'm just really conscious of late uh, of how 
in encouraging my children to live as Christians, that it's going to be much more costly for them than it has been so far in my life. To live as a Christian in Australia, I think, is going to be much more costly. It's going to be much harder to endure in the Christian life to the end. Because you're going to have to be letting go of things that you'd prefer to hold on to. So, for example, uh, we want to hold on to comfort. We all do. But enduring for Christ uh, generally means discomfort, perhaps increasingly so. We want to hold on to approval, but enduring for Christ means rejection, being okay with that sometimes. We want to hold on to status, but enduring for Christ means being mocked or scoffed at or, or maybe even humiliated. So how do we keep holding on to Christ when we want to hold on to these other things? Well, Hebrews 12 says, uh, therefore, you can flick to Hebrews 12 if you like. Hebrews 12 uh, from verse 1. It says, therefore, uh, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, right? think me, kind of running around the MCG, great cloud of witnesses, uh, let us throw off everything that hinders. Maybe don't think about me. Uh, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles uh, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Uh, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Right, so, so you see this here, that, the, that Christ endured his suffering by fixing his eyes on his joy, his great joy. Right, for, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And at least one aspect of that joy is back in Hebrews 2. Right, Christ's joy uh, was the thought of bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Whether the thought of being able to call people like you and me his brothers and sisters, of rescuing us and making us his holy people. That was his great joy. The thing that helped him to endure the cross. So Charles Spurgeon says, the joy that Christ felt was the joy of feeding us with the bread of life. Of clothing poor naked sinners like us in his righteousness. Of finding mansions in heaven for homeless souls like us, of delivering us from the prison of hell and giving us the eternal enjoyments of heaven. That was Christ's great joy. That's what got him through his suffering. It helped him to endure his suffering. He fixed his eyes on his people, on those who would be his future brothers and sisters, on you. You are his great joy if you're a Christian. And this is the key if you want to endure. It's the key if we want our kids to endure. We've got to understand understand that as we fix our eyes on Christ, that's the key to endurance. Let me explain. Uh, If you want, uh, we want comfort. How are you going to let go of comfort in this world? It's knowing that Christ offers you eternal comfort. Not temporary comforts of a nice house or meal or holiday. You'll be prepared to let go of those things and what they represent for the sake of following Christ. Do so you want approval perhaps and you know that, that Christ offers you eternal approval, the approval of your creator God, but not, not the temporary approval of your boss or parents or colleagues. So you're able to embrace some rejection, some cost for following Jesus. You want status and now you know that Christ offers you the eternal status of belonging to God his city, and to him. 
So it's okay if you don't belong to that workplace or network or club. If they don't want you there, if the doors close, the synagogue closes, it's okay. You don't need that status. You've got better status than that. Right? So you fix your eyes on Christ, that the one who is willing to endure great suffering for you, as you do that, you'll be able to throw off everything, you'll be able to let go of things that will entangle you, and step by step, I reckon you'll finish the race. I'm going to pray that we do. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this letter to the church in Philadelphia. Uh, we thank you for the way they're enduring in, uh, in the midst of opposition and for the encouragement of Christ for them to continue to endure to the end and receive their victor's crown. Uh, we pray, uh, Lord God, that we would be able to fix our eyes on uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who endured great suffering for our sake, uh, that we would be willing to let go of things that might entangle us, uh, throw them off, uh, so that we can uh, endure to the end, uh, holding on to him, uh, receiving our victor's crown. In his name we pray. Amen.